is our privilege this morning to welcome to our pulpit Dr. Scott Redd, president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and Old Testament professor as well. Now, let me get, take a moment to explain why we've invited him. Uh, we don't need an excuse, but there is a reason behind it as well. Uh, this is Reformation Sunday on the church calendars, an important day on the church calendars. You know, I know in some church calendars they tell you Reformation Sunday was last week. That's, that's just ignore those. Um, we only get it right whenever, whenever the 31st is on a Sunday. And other than that, sometimes we choose the closest Sunday and sometimes we choose the Sunday before. Some people chose before. Those of us who are correct chose the Sunday closest. So <laughs> regardless in terms of that, but part of one of the things, it's a special time in the calendar or not because we want to live, relive a, an ancient period because of what God had done that is vitally important to our lives today and our faith today that continues to give us light and hope. And one of the things that I'd love to see happen is develop over the years is to develop a spiritual life conference or something like that that will take place on this weekend that will celebrate not just what has been taught, but enable us to grow. And so it came to mind as to how we would kick this off. It's not a conference, obviously. Uh, but one of the things that I, I didn't indicate is that um, Scott and his wife Jennifer, who was here for the first service, uh, not only is he a respected Old Testament scholar and president of a respected theological seminary, but he's a former William & Mary student, and during his time at William & Mary, he and his wife were both part of Grace Covenant. And so first of all, to the college students, if you stick with us, week two can make you a theological giant. Um, <laughs> But it really, I just, I just thought, came to mind is who better then to give us a prequel and to celebrate Reformation Sunday uh, than the president of a seminary who's one of our own family. So Scott, please come and share the word with us. Good morning. Uh, and thank you for having me and, and having my wife and five daughters. Yes, five. Yes, daughters. Uh, at the earlier service, um, it's, a, it's a joy to be with you here. It really is special. Uh, we are personally very thankful for the body here at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, when I came to college in 90, this was 93, 92, 93, um, I had kind of a return to the faith. I was raised in a Christian family, but hadn't really developed an interest in it until the summer after my senior year in high school. And so I really came to Grace Covenant with a lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of um, just curiosity, and it was here that I was formed in the teaching of the Gospels, uh, where I learned what it meant for Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. I learned what it meant to be a member of a believing community, and so you all have a very special place, not only in my life, but also in the life of my wife. Came to college a few years after I did, and she also worshiped here, um, and so it was a blessing uh, for us, it is a blessing for us to be back here with you today. Um, thank you for having us. Uh, what I'd like to do today is, is start with reading of the Word, and then we're going to come back around, and we'll, we'll open in prayer, and then come back around and talk about what this has to do, not only with Reformation Sunday, but what these texts really have to say to us. I think the Reformation is a helpful grid through which we can understand God's Word for us today. And so we want to, as Pastor Griffith said, we want to live in the now and not live in some golden age of before. And so let us first look at God's word and then consider what it might mean for us. So the two texts that I'm reading today, I'm reading two because I want to draw attention to two different aspects of 
what it means for us to read God's word. And the first passage is coming from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. So Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 through 8. Keep a finger there and then flip over and find Romans 10. I'm going to read also from verses 10 through 15 in Romans chapter 10. Okay, let's try to have those both available for you. Um, Now, one thing I do want to say about this Nehemiah 8 passage, just for those of you who will get uncomfortable with too many foreign names, uh, there's a reason why uh, our author is listing the names as they are here in the text, and that's because he's an accountant, he's a record keeper, and he's interested in us knowing that this procedure that we're about to read about was done in good order. Not only that, he probably wants us to know, he wants the audience that he's writing for to know who was there so that they can recognize that not only was this a legitimate uh, event, but it was a historical event. That's often the case, by the way, also in the New Testament. When you find a name of a minor character mentioned, like in the Gospels, like Nicodemus for for one, you don't need to know Nicodemus' name, he could just be another Pharisee. And yet, It seems that the authors were putting these in, and most scholars agree on this now, that the authors put these names in to be sort of historical reference points. We could say, not only did it happen, here are the people who were there. Or in the case of the New Testament, they're writing for the church, just in case you want, and saying, if you want to know more about that event, you know, Nicodemus, who was a convert, and his family are in the church. So you can go find his children and ask them. So they seem to be almost little historical footnotes that the writers are putting in there to highlight the historicity of the passage. And that's why I'm not going to breeze through them here, but we will actually read all of the names of the elders present at this covenant renewal program in Nehemiah 8. So with that said, let's start in chapter 8, verse 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square, before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a platform that they had made for the purpose. And and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalum on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, All the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Yamin, Ahub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Yosavad, Hanan, and Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now please turn over to Romans chapter 10, verse 10 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call in him in who on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not a God of mystery in the sense that we have to ascend to mysterious sacred places to find you. We're not a God, Lord. You're not a God, rather, Lord, who requires us to go on long journeys through the wilderness to find your revelation about yourself. You've given it to us. We pray, Lord, that as we come before you today, reflecting on your word, that through the power of the Spirit, we would be transformed. We don't want to simply walk away from this morning with more theological knowledge or some kind of increased cognitive inventory. But Lord, we pray that through the power of your Spirit, we would experience the living God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, Lord, as we come before you. We know that we don't come without guilt. We don't come without sin. We don't come without distractions. Have mercy on us, Lord. Receive us, because we do come boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Does God speak? Does God speak? And if he does, would we understand him? (laughs) See, if God spoke, the next question is, would we understand what he said? He is, after all, God. This is a big question today. It's not a a, a light question. It's not something that's sort of on the margins or separate, but it seems actually to be the question of most Americans. If you look at the stats these days, most Americans do not debate whether or not there's a God. As a matter of fact, depending on which which polls you're looking at, between 75 and 90% of Americans believe that there's some kind of God. It's really only the celebrity atheists who are debating God's existence. For Americans, and most in the West... This idea of there being a God is not the question. The question is, how can we know him? Does he speak? And if he did, would we understand him? This was, I would argue, one of the central questions of the Reformation, this being Reformation Sunday. It's useful to reflect on that for a moment. I'd actually argue that as the Reformers were putting together their theological program, the, 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 the event of revival and changing, revolutionizing the church that they were a part of, They were really focusing primarily on this question, if God is there and if he speaks, can we really understand what he's saying? Now, I understand when we talk about the Reformation today, particularly after the last 10, 15 years, we have to admit that there is a kind of development of this tradition. It's been uh, more and more churches over the last 10 to 15 years have been claiming this title of being Reformed, and that's a good thing. I think the things that they're highlighting about the Reformation are good things. The idea that we're saved by faith alone, that's a good thing. We need to remember that. That should be central to our life in the church. And yet, if you actually go back and you look at the writings of the Reformers, you'll find that very few of them started there. 
a matter of fact, they typically didn't start with the beliefs like justification by faith alone, but rather began with the source. Where do we find those beliefs? And that, of course, is in the place that God spoke, his word. Matter of fact, if you look at what we call the solas, you know, sola scriptura, sola Christi, sola Deo Gloria, the, the idea that we know that we're saved by Christ alone, or we're saved through faith alone, or by grace alone, for the glory of God alone, all of those great doctrines are really founded, first of all, on this idea of Scripture alone as God's Word. How else would we know that it is only through Jesus that we're saved and by faith in Him? J.I. Packer, writing about the Puritans, who were the English form of the Reformed movement, said this. He said, Puritanism was, above all, a Bible movement. Above all, it's a Bible, Bible movement. To the Puritans, the Bible was, in truth, the most precious possession this world affords. No greater insult could be offered the Creator than to neglect His written word, and conversely, there could be no true act of homage to Him then to prize it and pour over it and then live out and give out its teaching, unquote. See, what Packer's pointing out is that for the Reformed tradition, the Scripture really was the real and living Word of God. It's His speech, it's His message, it is His love letter, it's His correspondence with His people. And as such, it cannot be circumvented or avoided. You see, as readers of the scriptures, they recognize that if God was really the Alpha and the Omega, if he really was the beginning and the end, if he really was royal father who we cry, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, if he's really a mighty warrior, and that's what the name Emmanuel means, God is with us when we go out into battle, if he really was creator God, his speech and his message to his people must be heeded, and we would only know those things about him through his word. John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, says this about God's word. He says, Here is the supreme power with which pastors of the church, by whatever name they are called, should be invested, namely, to dare all boldly for the word of God, compelling all the virtue, glory, wisdom, and rank of the world to yield and obey its majesty. It's a beautiful picture. You see, for Calvin, he says, if anyone has authority in this life, if anyone says something that's authoritative over you, it must be because they are rightly conveying God's word. All authority ultimately comes from the Lord in heaven who speaks and has spoken to us through his word. But for the reformers, God's word was not merely authoritative. As a matter of fact, what I want to talk about for the rest of the time here is not the authority of God's word, but ra rather their second great teaching. And it's this. God's word is not just authoritative, it's clear. Okay? For you theologians, the ironically used jargon for this word is perspicuity, which is great because it's about the clarity of God's word, and it's a word that nobody understands. Okay? But this is a perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture that I want to talk about this morning. See, God's word is not only authoritative, it's understandable. It's accessible to ordinary human beings, ordinary Christians, for the work of faith. This is as crucial to the Reformed view of Scripture as authority is. 
After all, no matter how authoritative the scriptures are, they are of little good to us if we cannot understand them. I want to jump ahead. We already read a little bit about the Westminster Confession, and so I want to jump ahead historically from Luther and Calvin to what the Westminster Confession says, and just kind of reflect on this briefly, about the clarity of the Scriptures. The theologians who gathered in Westminster to put together their summary of Christian belief say this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain or clear in themselves, Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, observed for salvation are clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another. Okay? So notice what they're saying here. They're not saying that God's Word is clear all the time in the same way, but they're saying that for the things that need to be known for salvation, the Scriptures are plain and clear enough. In other words, someone who has not been educated in God's Word, can sit down with the Scriptures and from reading them can plainly have laid out before them the way of salvation. But notice, they don't say they're all clear unto themselves. The, the Westminster writers, the theologians, understood that there are difficult passages. Okay? I mean, working in a seminary means that I get to be one of those people who receives a lot of questions about those difficult passages. I'm sure your pastor feels the same way. And for me, in the Old Testament, they're typically the same types of questions over and over again. Questions like, you know, who were the Nephilim, right? You know, that's a common question. And to be honest, we, there are theories, there are speculations I could put forward. I could say, this is all that the Scripture says about the Nephilim, but you would still probably walk away wondering, who are the Nephilim, <laughs> okay? It's just the scriptures aren't that clear. The Lord did not feel as if that was something through his revelation of Moses that needed to be laid out clearly. We could also ask ourselves, who are Seth's wives? Right? And we can speculate. Okay? We can talk about who that might have been. There's, there's ways to talk about who Seth's wives may have been. And yet the scriptures isn't clear about that. We can ask ourselves, what's going on in that story in Exodus 4? where Zipporah and, and, and Moses and Moses' son is being circumcised. It's just a strange story, okay? It says something about God's holiness and about Moses' need to be prepared for his ministry, but we don't get much more apart from that. Okay? If you don't know the passage I'm talking about, go read it afterwards. It's just kind of a hard-to-understand story. But notice, in light of those stories, even with those stories being in the Scriptures, the Scriptures are still alike plain in the way that they describe what we need for salvation. The confession goes on. It says the scriptures are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Notice what they're saying there. They're saying that the scriptures are clear enough that the unlearned and the learned, if they are confronted with the teaching of God's word, can understand the way to salvation. Now, the operative phrase here, of course, is that phrase, in due use of ordinary means. See, the confession is saying, God's word is clear and authoritative unto salvation in due use of ordinary means. And what are those ordinary means? Well, basically, the ordinary means are that... Um, before we talk about them, how are they different from what extraordinary means would be? What the confession is saying is, not, is that God's word is clear to you even if you don't have some kind of mystical, spiritual experience. 
okay? In other words, God's word is not only clear to you if you have some kind of special spiritual, I don't know, magical spectacles through which you can read it, okay? It's not encoded, and you need the code to be somehow unpacked for you in some sort of special or extraordinary way. But they say it's it's through ordinary means that the scriptures are clear. So what are the ordinary means? They're they're things like this, hearing. (laughs) You haven't heard the scriptures, then you have not heard God's word to you in them. Reading. If you have not read the scriptures and you haven't heard the scriptures, then you have not experienced God's word to you. That means certain things. There's someone to read or to speak or to teach you how to read and deliver to you a text so that you can read. These are quite ordinary. It also means, by the way, that you have a text that's written in your own language. And we know the Apostle Paul was happy to lift up, when he teached the Bible, he would lift up his Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament and said, Thus saith the Lord. He knew he was speaking, he was using a Greek translation. But he understands how the due use of ordinary means work. That's why you can hold up your English Bible and say, Thus saith the Lord. You see, God's word is communicated through ordinary means. And this these two passages that we just read, one from Nehemiah and one from Romans, we illustrate how these ordinary means are at work. The story of Nehemiah is a very interesting one. It's, it's about Israel after 536 B.C. Okay, so, so Cyrus, the Persian emperor, has sent them back to the land, Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel, they may be the same person, but they go back to the land to rebuild the covenant community. They're building the wall. They're rebuilding the temple. And now they're going about the business of covenant renewal, and and Ezra is leading them in covenant renewal. And to do covenant renewal, you have to read the law. You have to read the covenant document. But there's a problem. So this is happening sometime in the 6th century. Think about when the covenant was written. This is the book of the law of Moses. It's most likely talking about Deuteronomy, but it might be talking about other parts of the Pentateuch. It says that they read from the morning till the late, uh, the, the afternoon or midday, so it's, they could have been reading so, for such a long time they read beyond just the book of Deuteronomy. That book, though, Moses' writings, happened in the late second millennium B.C., and now here they are in the sixth or maybe fifth century B.C. Hundreds of years have passed, and language changes over time, particularly when you've been in, in exile in a foreign land where everybody speaks Aramaic. So you see there's a problem of ordinary means. So as Ezra is preaching, and as he's teaching, he sends out elders. I love this picture. I love love giving this vision to our students at the seminary, that they are the elders who are being sent out to intermingle with the people who are hearing the word of God and to give it sense, to explain it, so they can understand it. You see, The covenant renewal can't take place unless they understand the covenant that they're entering into. And Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah the the administrator and God who's revealing his word through them says that's a perfectly good way. That's a perfectly good way of teaching my word. Send out the elders to explain its sense. Paul is saying something very similar. He's saying, yes, we believe that these are the words of life, we believe that this, pat, this word of God has been given to us, and if you hear it, then you can respond with belief and be justified by faith. But he says you can't hear it unless someone gives it to you, and you can't 
have someone give it to you unless they can be sent to give it to you. You can't have a preacher go and preach to an audience who's never heard the word if you don't have a plane to fly him there or a horse or a carriage or a camel or whatever it takes to get that preacher of the gospel there. Those are the ordinary means. Paul says they can't believe if they haven't been told. They need preachers. They need those elders going out into the world and giving the sense of the word of God. It's wonderful to see the missionaries who you're supporting, and I see that some of them are involved in translation work and teaching work with Wycliffe Bible translators and with other kinds of ministries like that. That's an important job. It's an important task. So I would encourage you, as you are a church, sending people out to proclaim God's word, that you be encouraged in that. Well, we might say, if God's word is clear and it can be understood unto the things of faith, that's great, I understand, but that's not really a profound theological insight, is it? I'd actually argue that in the time of the Reformation and in our day-to-day, it actually is a profound insight. Let's go back to the Reformation first. The Reformation, remember, is coming at the end of several centuries of the medieval church. Now, in the medieval church, in the early part of the medieval church, they ran into a problem, and it's a problem that we can understand. It's kind of a practical situation. You had a largely illiterate congregation. You had people teaching God's word and explaining God's word to them, and that's all well and good. However, the people teaching God's word, which were the doctors of the church, were coming up with increasingly complex ways of interpreting God's word. As a matter of fact, they got to the point where they said, really, you should read the Bible always in four ways. Okay, there's like an allegorical way, and then there's a moralistic way, and then there's kind of the literal, just what the text says way, and then there's a way that kind of points us towards the eschaton. And there's all these kind of different complex ways of reading God's word. So you're talking to a largely illiterate congregation, and you're telling them that they really can't read God's word unless they understand these different mean, senses in which the text means. And as you can imagine, it It wasn't long before people said, you know what, why don't we just stop reading God's word ourselves and just go to the church to find out what we should believe, right? You can see how that practically develops. But as often is the case, a practical solution became a bad doctrine. So by the time of the reformers, there was this idea out there that really God's word was communicated to us in two streams, church tradition and the Bible. And because you probably can't understand the Bible, just rely on church tradition. So when Wycliffe and Luther and Tyndale and others are gathering together and making their translations of God's word, they're actually doing a quite revolutionary thing. They are stepping into this situation that says, you shouldn't read the Bible, you don't need to read the Bible, we'll take care of it for you. And they're saying, absolutely not. You need to have God's word translated into your own tongue. You see, the medieval situation had left the believer, the commoner, disenfranchised from God's word. It set up a wall of separation between God's revealed word and the individual human soul. The reformers stepped into that and they said, absolutely not. And that's why, as you read the life of Luther, after he's condemned in Rome and he's sent back as a heretic, The first place he goes when he kind of stages an abduction, the first place he goes is off to a castle where he hides away. Okay? Does he start writing theological texts? No. (laughs) You know, 
Does he start sending out communiques to his followers, making plans for their revolution? No. You know what he starts to do? He starts to translate the Bible into German. He realizes that that's the next step. It's interesting because we actually have copies of his memoirs from that time, and I want to read you just one of them just so you can see how pained Luther was with this process of translation. Luther was a literary mind. He was an academic. He knew Hebrew and Greek back, back and forth, but he still knew the importance of translating God's word into German. But it was not easy for him. Listen to a quote from this memoir that he wrote while he was translating the prophets in particular, the prophets of the Old Testament. He said, we are now sweating over the translation of the prophets into German. Oh God, what a great and hard toil it requires to compel the writers against their will to speak German. They do not want to give up their Hebrew and imitate the barbaric German. Just as though, this is wonderful, this is perfect Luther, just as though a nightingale should be compelled to imitate a cuckoo and give up her glorious melody even though she hates a song in monotone. Luther is always 100%. (laughs) And he seems to be really suffering here. He's really hating that he has to do this, but he recognizes that it's a necessary suffering because the German farmer and the German fishwife and the German pastor and the German merchant need to have God's word available to them in their own language. It was the profound insight of the Reformation to remove the wall of separation between the Word of God and the individual soul, and to put the Scripture's clarity on display for all to see through translation, yes, but also through the preaching and explanation and explication of the biblical text on its own terms, in light of the whole counsel of God and testified to by the Spirit. You see, this is a radical change in direction that they were offering for the church. I'd offer that it's a radical change in direction for us as well. That we need to remember that God's word is not merely authoritative, but it's actually clear. We can actually rely on its clarity. I'll give you an example. One of the uh, opportunities that I have as as a seminary guy is that I get to go out and work with the church as it's growing in other parts of the world. And one place where we're really seeing some amazing growth against all odds, is in the Mediterranean basin, particularly North Africa and the Middle East. And you're seeing pastors who are coming out of highly restricted communities and embracing the gospel, being converts from Islam, becoming Christians, and then actually, like Paul and other famous converts, being lifted up to positions of authority, where they're being set in pulpits to teach. And what's interesting is they all have a high view of the scriptures, but many of them are so concerned that they'll preach some kind of untruth that I've heard some of them tell me that they'll either stand up and read something that they found on the Internet, which, of course, is not great, or (laughs) they'll stand up and just read God's Word straight through for 20 minutes for the sermon because they don't want to say something wrong. So what we've tried to do is actually gather them together in a safe place where we can give them kind of a high-speed seminary education. These are the basics of teaching God's Word the basics of marriage counseling, the basics of evangelism and preaching. And it often falls to me to do the biblical study. And so I gather with these gentlemen and women, and we sit down and we talk, and I will start teaching them through the story of redemption in the Bible. And inevitably, the lights start to turn on in their eyes. 
Now think about it. They've read God's word. They, they understand its basic meaning. They understand what it means to be saved. They've converted and followed Jesus Christ. And yet it's still a thick book. There's a lot in there. And so as they hear what it means uh, to read the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see slowly the lights coming on. And inevitably, it's usually in the second or third day, I'll start seeing hands go up. I remember one gentleman who is an Algerian pastor and is really one of my heroes of the faith. I have to say that. He is one of my heroes of the faith. He is a faithful, faithful man of God who has lived through incredible persecution based solely on his understanding of Jesus Christ. But I remember one time when we were talking, this is early when I first met him, the first class I'd had him in, he raised his hand about the second day in, and he said, I've never read the Bible this way. It is so free. It makes so much sense. I said, yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's beautiful. It's beautiful how much sense the scriptures make. You see, the work of translating and bringing the teaching of God's word to them in a clear way was powerful. And it reminded me of what it first felt like as I was becoming acquainted with the teaching of the word of God. A lot of that happened, by the way, at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. So this job of translating, of teaching, of training is a main job of missionaries and translators, but it's not just them, and it's not just your pastors either who are called to make the Scriptures clear. I would actually argue that we all, as Christians, are called to this kind of clear explication of our faith. The Apostle Peter himself says that we are all to be able to give an answer. We're all to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And that defense, that reason, that answer should be intelligible, it should be understandable, so that it can be a proper defense. And this is why. Because God revealed himself to us in a way that was clear. Because we worship a God who has mercifully condescended to speak to us in the confines of human language. Imagine that, a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, spoke to us in human grammar, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. And even in that sense, he didn't use the most complicated literary forms of those grammars, but he often used the most regular, the most market-based The Greek that we find in the New Testament is a Greek that would be used in the markets because everyone could understand it. It was simple. It was clear. Because we worship a Lord who did not consider it something to be hoarded and grasped to stay in heaven, but he emptied himself becoming the Son of God, becoming man, the incarnate Logos, the Word of God. And he walked amongst us and he talked to us and he experienced our experiences and he made himself a substitute for us. Because it was the practice of Jesus to debate with the best and the most learned scholars of his day, but he did not consider himself too great not to sit down with a beggar or a marginalized, demon-possessed man or a disenfranchised Syrophoenician woman and give them the plain teaching of the gospel. Because we of all people have benefited the most from the clear articulation of the good news through which we were called to faith in Jesus Christ, justified by his life and death, adopted as son, sanctified by the Spirit, and made to long for glory. Because of these things, we of all people know the value 
clear teaching of Scripture. We personally understand the call to proclaim the teaching of Scripture in a clear and intelligible way, and yet this is still a difficult job. I know it is. I know it's hard to say the Scriptures in a clear way. People don't understand how how difficult that is. As a seminary professor, this is something I struggle with regularly. You know, there's this... There's this difficulty in explaining God's word in a way that people will understand and be able to go off and use on their own. And I think part of that has to do with sort of method, sort of style and the way that you teach. But I think a big part of that also has to do with the heart. You see, we err if we think that the medieval church was the last church who set up theological terminology and doctrines as a wall or a weapon against faith. I'd even argue that reform people like ourselves, people who study God's word and you study the theological debates of the past, you study the great minds of our tradition, and you've done all that work, you know what justification by faith means. You know what the difference is, some of you will, between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism, right? And then you'll go out and you'll be, well, what am I supposed to dumb it all down for this guy who lives next door to me, who's kind of annoying anyways? But here he is asking me why I always leave the house dressed up on Sunday morning. I'm supposed to give a reason and a defense of my faith. The Apostle Paul was happy to say that he would become a Jew for the Jews and a Greek for the Greeks if it meant that God's word could be taught in a clear way. You see, for Old Testament professors, I suffer from this temptation too has to do with job security. After all, if people get all of their answers from me, then they don't need to come back to me anymore for more answers, do they? So there's a temptation to introduce just enough obscurity that they have to keep coming back. It's the temptation of the teacher of God's word, and so it's a temptation for which we need to repent. The sin is one of arrogance. It's one of insecurity. The need to power over other people with our knowledge. We need to repent. We need to reject it. We did not become Christians because we were so smart. We became Christians because God's word is clear and his Holy Spirit attended to its teaching that we might have been regenerated and believed in him. So let's repent. But after that, after we've gotten our hearts straight with the Lord, there's still some, I think, good suggestions that we can take to heart as we think about how we teach God's word in a way that's clear, how we give that reason, that defense of our faith in a way that our neighbors might understand. And the first is this, recognize all of the resources you have available to you, primarily the Bible. Think about that as you're reading the scriptures next time, as you're looking at the prophet Isaiah and you're noticing the way that he teaches and really how does he try to frame God's word through him in a way that the people will understand? How is, is he aware of their anxieties and their fears and their hopes? How does he speak to them? How does he know his audience and, and, and give the word in a way that's clear? We might find, it's interesting that here in this agrarian culture, Isaiah keeps using images like the vineyard and the cucumber field and the farm. And then as Assyria, as an empire, you know, stretches across the land, raging warfare on the northern kingdoms, Isaiah begins to use images of warfare and siege. You see, he's speaking in the vernacular of the people to whom he's speaking. He understands them, and he's giving God's word in a way they'll understand. You know, they don't hear. 
their hearts are still hardened. But it's not because he cloaked God's word in high language or something or, or, or imagery that didn't relate to the people to whom he was speaking. Jonathan Edwards, the great philosopher and pastor of American history, would often use illustrations from nature because he knew that his audience was mixed. They had both academics and he had farmers. And he said, what's the same shared experience that I can use so that they'll all understand? And so he'd use pictures like spiders hanging from webs over fires to talk about what it means to be saved. Because he'd say, that's an image everyone can understand. So as he was preaching, both the farmer on one side and the academic on the other would all be weeping in repentance during the first great spiritual awakening in the United States. It's because the pastors knew how to package biblical truths in a clear and intelligible way. Yes, the Spirit was present, but the Spirit was working through the ordinary means of the pastor. So first, be aware of those resources around you. Your pastors are great resources in this regard as well. Hear how they clearly articulate God's word. Secondly, listen to those around you, both believers and non-believers. What do they value? What do they spend their time thinking about? What do they, uh, as the uh, politicians say, what do they talk about around the kitchen table? Right? What are their, fer- their fears and their hopes, their loves and their anxieties? And how can you articulate the gospel in a way that they'll understand and they'll hear? I remember one time I was preaching in Miami, and the text was from 1 Corinthians. And as kind of a side point, I said, you know, Corinth was a lot like Miami. It was a big sports town, and it was a gateway to southern markets. Okay? It was just an aside. I, I, I didn't even know where that came from. I said it. And afterwards, a woman came up to me, and she said, you know what? I've never thought about it that way. And when you say that, it made the book of Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians, come alive in a way it hadn't before. She all of a sudden saw all the continuity between what Paul was writing to about in the letter to the Corinthians and her own neighbors and her own situation and the concerns that pull them and draw them away from the gospel. It's funny how it's just something like that, just a clear analogy, can all of a sudden open up God's word in an extraordinary way. By the way, as you listen to your Christian and non-Christian friends, you'll also find yourself becoming a better listener. And that's a good quality I think all of us could improve upon. Let me add on that point. For unbelievers, if there's any unbelievers here, if there's anyone who's just, God's word has never really been something they've spent a lot of time with, I would encourage you. It's clear. If you're the kind of person who likes a journalist account, just kind of the facts, keep the story moving, go open up the book, the Gospel of Mark. You'll be surprised how clear it is, how much it speaks into your own life. If you're not, if you're someone who's more you know, meditative, contemplative, open up the Gospel of John. See how John meditates on the life and work of Jesus Christ. You'll find a few things. First of all, it makes sense. And second of all, it's not hard to start seeing, see how it has implications for your own life. I'd encourage you in that. So first, know what resources are available to you. Second, listen to those around you. And third and lastly, pray. Pray for one another. Pray for that neighbor who you have so much trouble talking to about Jesus Christ and presenting Christ in a clear and understandable way. Pray about them. Pray about their fears. Pray about their hopes. Pray about their struggles. As you find yourself thinking and praying on them when they are not around, you will find yourself more sympathetic to them, more loving towards them, and more desirous, more motivated to explain God's word in a way that is clear.
pray for one another. Use the resources, listen to others, and pray for them. Don't do it to earn your salvation. You can't do that. Don't do it to try to get God to love you even more than he already does. He loves you like he loves his son. Trust me, that's enough. You do it, though, because God has revealed himself to you in a way that you could understand. And you are now working out that faith by being one who proclaims the words of hope, the words of life to those around you. I believe what J.I. Packer said of the Puritans must be also true of us today. We need to be a Bible movement. The Bible is the word of God. It holds the gospel. It holds the very words of life from Christ Jesus, as the Apostle Peter said. To whom else are we going to turn, Lord? We need to be a Bible movement. As such, we have much to offer the church and the world, as long as by God's grace, empowered by his Spirit, we speak clearly so that they will understand. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to meditate for a moment on how you've spoken to us. We recognize that we are failing in this. We've probably had some successes. We've probably also seen some pretty significant failures. I pray that you would bless us in it, that you'd guide us in it. And as we prepare our hearts now to come before your table and to participate and to remember and to give thanks and to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, that we would be filled with the Spirit through the teaching of the Word. Let us come to know Jesus more closely, the Son of God who revealed himself to us in such an understandable, intelligible way. Help us, Lord, likewise in humility but with great hope to proclaim the gospel to those around us as we go out to this afternoon and to the rest of this week. In the name of Jesus.